Welcome to Stay Grounded with your host, me, Raj Jana. I'm the founder of Java Press Coffee Company, and my life changed after my mentor died with three months left until retirement. That experience inspired me to start a personal journey to discover how we can all live a purpose-driven and meaningful life starting today. I interview everyone from best-selling authors and business moguls to extreme athletes and monks to discuss happiness, success, and fulfillment to uncover powerful takeaways that empower you to stay grounded and make passionate living a reality. To access post-podcast discussions, insights, and further resources, visit rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded. So thanks for joining me today. Now, let's get to grinding. Yo, what's up, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Stay Grounded. I hope you're all having an amazing day so far. I am extremely excited to be re-releasing this week's episode with the incredible Panache Desai. So this episode was recorded the weekend before all of the COVID lockdowns happened. And this was recorded live in Austin. In fact, Panache was the last person that I really got to hang out with physically before all the lockdowns and before life just sort of took an interesting turn in a very, very, very weird direction for the next 18 months. And at that time, I was emotionally just in a very different space, asking a lot of questions of myself, couldn't really find the answers to the thing that I was really craving, which was a deeper level of self-love and self-acceptance, but I didn't know how to access it. And it wasn't until I met Panache, I had this conversation, read his book, and left with just one of the most profound shifts in my own consciousness that things started to shift for me. In fact, it was that event, meeting Panache, that led to the next several months of 2020 being a wild roller coaster. He's just one of the most incredible and loving human beings I've ever met. Just to give you some background on him, he is a visionary thought leader in the area of human development. He's appeared on Oprah Super Soul Sunday. He's collaborated with Deepak Chopra. He's worked with everyone from Neil Donald Walsh to Joe Dispenza to the late Ram Das and several other luminaries in the fields of spiritual and personal development. I mean, he really is just, oh, he's definitely the most enlightened human being that I have had the privilege of getting to know. And in, in, in the words enlightenment, I mean somebody who truly embodies that level of love and light in them and freely shares that with the world. I've just learned so much from him. I learned so much from this conversation. And this conversation led me down a very interesting path in 2020 and beyond. And as COVID is sort of not coming to an end, but I feel like with all the vaccinations and things opening up and the mask mandates going away, like we're returning to some level of normalcy. And I was, as I was reflecting on that, I was just thinking about where I was when COVID began and this episode came to my mind and my heart. And so that is the impetus for me wanting to share it with you all. I hope it is incredibly valuable for you. This was one of my favorite conversations that I had in 2020 and is still one of my favorite episodes that we've recorded for the podcast. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, if you haven't already, go ahead and buy his book, You Are Enough. Just thank me later. It's one of my favorite reads, and I gift it all the time to people I care for. And subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. All that means is that every single time we release a new episode, it falls straight into your inbox. Shoot me or Panache a message on Instagram. Tag us in your stories. Let us know if this content and this episode is resonating. We want to hear from you. We want to know what is landing in your heart. And most importantly, I hope you are giving yourself a massive hug and taking a deep breath and remembering that you are enough. 
you are loved. And no matter what you are going through, after every single storm, there's weeks of sunshine. So without further ado, here is the amazing Mr. Panache Desai. Enjoy. Yo, yo, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Stay Grounded. Panache, welcome. Hi, brother. I'm so, so, so grateful for the opportunity and the chance to sit with you in this medium and uh, learn from you and share your wisdom and share your light uh, with the world. So I already introduced you in all of your amazingness prior to anybody listening, tuning into this conversation. So I'll skip the boring details. I wanted to start with the inception of the book. Why this book? Why now? And what does that mean for you at this point in your career? So this book was born coming off the back of these incredible highs of Oprah in February 2013, and then getting a book deal with Penguin Random House that was just a blessing, and then having the book come out in April of 2014, and subsequently finding out that we were pregnant. So we were just back to back with all these wonderful highs. And one day we get a phone call about three to five months into that pregnancy that one of our twins had a potential heart issue and that we needed to fly up to Milwaukee, Wisconsin immediately for an ultrasound. And at that point, we still weren't sure exactly what that meant, but we knew we were going to meet with uh, somebody from the pediatric cardiac unit there and who's a specialist in these things to figure out what, how we can help her. So the conversation basically was in a room not too dissimilar to this. My wife and I, the two doctors, she proceeded to say that she wasn't sure that Celeste was going to make it. If she did, that then she would need palliative care, which means that she probably wasn't going to make it too long after she was born. And that if she was able to make it beyond that, then at that point she would need intensive medical intervention for the duration of her life. And that the quality of her life may be impaired. Uh, there may be some brain damage as a result of the low oxygen saturation that she was experiencing as a result of the heart not functioning properly. So we were just dealing with one impossible scenario after another. Jan and I literally had had this joy of being parents again and wanting to dive into the expansion of our family just ripped out from underneath us. Yeah. And it's, it began there in that room. And it began there in that room because what ensued was an 18-month journey with Celeste. She did make it through the pregnancy. Uh, Within literally hours of being born, she had her first open heart procedure. Uh, They uh, put an external uh, pacemaker on her to see if that would help her blood saturation level. Uh, It made somewhat of a difference, but it wasn't the be-all and end-all. And then this 18-month journey of five open heart procedures and then subsequently a heart transplant at the age of 18 months. And as most people know who've been through crisis, one of two things happens. It either tears your family apart because you're dealing with the stress and the intensity of this situation, uh, which is bringing up everything that's yeah. unresolved in everyone. You know, Jan's biggest fear was losing a child. My mother, before she had me, had had a stillborn baby girl. And I was present to the absolute powerlessness that I felt as a father. You know, here I was thought leader top of his game ready to just emerge into the world stage and just basically be the destination for everything spiritual and personal development and all of a sudden my own daughter's going through this crisis and there's absolutely nothing that i can do nothing not one thing to help her not one thing to make a difference not one thing to guarantee her being here and being able to navigate life and the pinnacle for this for me was i had gotten to a point during one of the surgeries where I just couldn't take it anymore. There's so much suffering and so much pain inside of me around this. 
primarily because I had an attachment to her being okay. Right? I had wow. an attachment to her being okay and her making it. So the suffering was just building and building and building inside of me because that's what I wanted for her. At one point during all of this, I excused myself from being in the room. Jam was there and I went downstairs to the chapel. And I just fell to my knees and I just started crying. And I said, listen, you know what? I don't, I don't understand why this is happening. I understand that she needs to go through this for whatever reason, but I get it. Like, if she's not meant to make it, like, I'm at peace with that. And it's in that moment that I was finally able to be freed of the intensity of the suffering that I was experiencing. It was in that moment that the trust and surrender that, and the humility that I needed to access inside of myself came into being. And it was in that moment that I was shown that all of these things that I had done in my life didn't mean anything because I would trade any of them in for one second with her. This journey became the catalyst for me to reevaluate how I was living, what I was living for, what was important to me. And it began an intensive five-year journey of me doing some very deep inner work, particularly shadow work, to begin to get clear about, okay, what's driving me, what's motivating me, what's important. Because prior to that point, I'd led a pretty charmed life. Let's not say that things hadn't happened, but the intensity of crisis had shown me the cracks in the identity and this persona that had been created around me as spiritual teacher and author and thought leader. And those cracks were the exact entry points through which grace could enter my life. And so as a result of everything that she went through, you know, I'd always say this, like her heart defect corrected mine. Her, her willingness to take on this agreement of being my daughter, of going through this scenario, allowed us as a family to come together and to love each other and to be available for each other and to be patient with one another and spacious with one another. Because there's nothing like a visit from death to accentuate the precious gift that is life. Because you realize that the only real commodity is time. There's nothing else. Right? So it doesn't matter what you've done and who you are and who you work with and who you've helped and how you've been acknowledged or how you haven't been. Like All of those things at the level of identity are inconsequential. What's important is time. And I'm happy to say that as a result of everything that we've gone through, Jan and I were able to stay together. We have a closer relationship than we ever have before. That this five-year window was an intensive immersion into humility and into maturing, into who I am now. And that every area of my life that was out of harmony has been radically and drastically brought into harmony. (laughs) That was the genesis of this book. You know, I honestly don't think that this book could have come into being had I not received the gift and the blessing of crisis in my life. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. The courage to surrender, I think, is something that a lot mm-hmm. of people, including myself, struggle with. And I know that that's something in your story then I even felt really you had to be pulled to that degree to even drop to your knees and surrender. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Because we live in this false notion in the Western world that we have to become somebody. Whereas in India, in the Eastern world, you know, we're comfortable being nobody, right? The whole journey is about being empty, about being nobody, about flowing with life, about living in this stream of life. And I think at some point we get conditioned out of that cultural heritage that we've received or that essence of connection that's the foundation of our experience. And so for me, my identity formed around spirituality. You know, I was successful in a spiritual capacity. Yeah. I was known all over the world in that, which is a very unusual genre to be known for, right? Yeah. I mean, people typically start businesses and companies like you, and that's how they find their, their place in the world, right? Or their space of contribution. And for me, it just began from spirituality, right? From a very early age. 
So I think that what happens is we eventually, and I believe that we design these moments for ourselves. I really believe that crisis is something that we create for ourselves in order to return to authenticity, in order for us to get that we're enough. And for me, I needed this particular flavor of crisis at exactly that moment in my life when I was at the absolute high, ready to, to, to just take over completely and to be the guy. Right? I needed the crisis that I experienced at that moment to realize that that's not what it was about at all, that it's not what it's about, that it's about connection. It's about honoring, valuing. It's about the gift that we have in life. And that, again, the blessing of that reforms and redefines who we are. And I think that at some point we have to go through that redefinition for ourselves. Do you think every crisis is leading us towards that same universal realization? I believe so. I believe that everything is leading us towards that fundamental redefinition and realization, right? The only problem is that we, we don't welcome it, right? We resist it. We fight against it. You know, we're struggling, but then we spend all of our time in the analysis of why we're struggling instead of realizing the gift of the struggle. And the gift of the struggle is to show us everywhere inside of us that we still have to love or everything inside of us that has yet to be integrated or has yet to be brought into completion, right? So life is our greatest catalyst and teacher, right? And in that moment, life was catalyzing something deeper in me, right? That wouldn't have been available to me in the absence of that experience. Yesterday when we were sitting, you held my hand at dinner and I remember I felt a I haven't felt that level of calmness in so long. Mm. And I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was the breathing. I didn't know if it was the permission that I got from you. I didn't know if it was me just going through and finally surrendering. Mm. But what does, I guess for anybody listening, what does surrender feel like? What does that sense of peace feel like internally I think that's one of, for me, like even knowing what that feels like makes me feel hopeful that I'll be able to feel it. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, what does that feel like? So in the first part of the question basically is how does that happen? So we represent shortcuts for each other, mm -hmm. right? So for example, in an entrepreneurial setting, you would be a shortcut for me because of all the experiences that you've had. And it's the same thing in a spiritual setting. So the depth of my own spiritual exploration allows me to give you an entry point into presence that you have yet to remember. So in that moment, what's happening is the state of being that I'm embodying, that I live in, is being entrained in you to the point where you remember it as who you are. Mm -hmm. right? So we come from this cultural heritage where these deep states of being were transferred from one human being to another through a look, through a touch, through an intention. And as much as that can happen on an individual level, it can happen on a collective level with thousands of people. So this is how we share our wisdom and knowledge, especially in India. It's all through presence. It's all through being in presence. And we recognize that that transmission or that translation of a state is that shortcut. And different traditions have different entry points. In the shamanic tradition, they work with plant medicines, right? In different cultures, they have different ways of getting people to that same place of connection. However, for me, that's really my purpose in life is to help people shortcut that journey into presence back to their essential self. And so that's what you experienced. Uh, secondly, the reason why peace was so present in the midst of that experience is because peace is the translation of your enlightened consciousness as an experience. 
So for example, we have this false metric around meditation and spiritual practice. Okay, we think, it, we think that it's about uh, getting rid of things or stopping things, right? And it's not. It's through acceptance that we begin to access the oneness that's always there at our foundation, at our core. And so for me, I'm always present to this sense of peace. And that peace is ever present underneath anger, sadness, fear, hopelessness, loss, despair, whatever it is that's going on, that peace is ever present. And that peace is my enlightened consciousness. It's that part of me that knows. It's that essential self. And what I've discovered is that the more we can reorient our experience around that peace, the more we begin to live heightened synchronicity and the more we fully are able to express the dynamic potential that lives inside of us. So peace is our power. And when we source every choice and decision from peace, we're sourcing every choice and decision from harmony Mm. because it's coming from the depth of who we are. And this is this fantastic recalibration that we're going through now. And the context of this is that I believe that we're living in the most important decade in human history. Individuals like you and I are unwinding everything on an unconscious level that's inside of us so that then we can collectively unwind it, right, as the species, right, and restore harmony and balance in our lives. And so even, interesting, when I look at the five-year journey that I went through with Celeste, it was the warm-up for this greater 10-year journey that now every single person is going to go through. And I fundamentally believe that everyone is going to go through their own version of ending up on their knees and absolutely surrendering and, and returning to trust in their own unique way. And so it's funny how I live things out before collectively they have to be manifest in the experience of people as a part of their evolutionary arc. Well, it allows you to help them. Exactly. So the intensity of that crisis in that five-year window was in preparation for this 10-year window of time where this message of you are enough begins to permeate the world. And that message not just is received on a cognitive level, but it's received on an experiential level where people can really live in this state of samadhi, of union, of complete integration of self. I'd love to maybe define what the essential self is, as you mentioned it, because I know you have the created self and the essential self, so maybe you can give some context. So the essential self is known by many different names. It's authentic self or soul, right? Essential self. But that's the part of us that can neither be created nor destroyed. It's the part of us that never changes, right? And we're in connection with it on a conscious level when we're experiencing peace. When we're experiencing peace, we're authentically being who we are. Every other experience that we're having is impermanent, and therefore it is not the truth of who we are. So the peace is an entry point into the essential self. And why that's important is because that's where all of our potential and our power is. When people speak in terms of empowerment, okay, we have a false metric for transformation, right? Because right now in the modern world, we have this preoccupation with the mind, changing our beliefs, shifting the level of thought, and we're missing the point that everything in our reality is responding to how we feel about ourselves and that transformation happens at the level of feeling, We've known this, right? Mystics and yogis know this, that transformation happens at the level of our energy and our frequency. And the more we can embrace who we are at the level of our humanity, the more we have an entry point to our divinity, the more we're able to abide in this state of presence and peace. And the more we're able to then be fully available for what's happening in the moment, be coherent with it, be congruent with it, and make the most of of this blessing right? That's unfolding in front of us. Almost like we are who we've always been looking for. Exactly. 
It's just that we've been conditioned to believe in some way, shape or form that we have to be some other version of ourselves or that we shouldn't be feeling certain emotions or having certain experiences or going through whatever it is that we have to go through. And you know what, Raj, the most important thing, brother, that I've gotten to is that nothing outside of me needs to change. Not one thing. In fact, wanting something outside of me to change is an absolute waste of my time. My role in all of this as a human being that's evolving is to simply be able to fully meet what's going on outside of me, to fully be able to meet it, to be available for it. And if it's impacting me, to allow it to impact me. If it's generating something inside of me that's uncomfortable, to welcome the feeling of the discomfort that I'm feeling. If it's something that's causing me to experience happiness inside of me, to recognize that that happiness is also inherently present within me. And that's why I'm feeling it in the moment. So all of this that's playing out is facilitate the radical personal empowerment of the individual. And that's the era that we're living inside of. Because if we think for one moment that change is going to come from our political system, a financial system, our educational system, or any external structure, then we're deluded. Where's transformation really going to come from? Inside of us. By returning to the power of the human heart. And by once again engaging in the fact that when we connect at that level, we're able to love We're able to be available and we're able to express the highest potential, not just for ourselves, but for each other as human beings. What does being available for those external sort of triggers even feel like? Or what what, what does that space look like? It's wonderful. So, for example, when I was a kid, I realized that uh, I was living in a giant illusion, right? This giant hall of mirrors. (laughs) And basically that everybody was a mirror. And so there are some mirrors that we have an aversion to. And there are some mirrors that are easier to lean into. In particular, where we have to focus is where we have an aversion. It's something that we don't want to see about ourselves. It's a part of us that we don't want to own. But I've realized, you know, throughout the course of my life that I'm only ever looking in the mirror. And that it's my role to embrace what I'm seeing, right? To accept that I have these qualities inside of me. That humanity is collectively expressing all of these attributes that I have the potential to express in any given moment by virtue of the fact that I'm human. So what's been missing in the transformational space is integration. We've been busy rejecting, denying, trying to improve, trying to transcend, trying to avoid, right? And we've been doing everything possible within our power to avoid being who we are. And what I'm saying is we have to do the opposite. What we have to do is turn our attention within ourselves and focus on how we feel in the presence of the other person, because that person is reminding us of who we really are. The only thing that's happening down here is God is revealing God. Love is, love is unfolding love. That's the only thing that's happening down here, right? There's nothing else going on. That's all this is about. It's almost like our feelings are the universal language that we should be optimizing our lives for, mm-hmm. the things that we should be paying attention to, and the lessons that we should be taking from, right? Like if somebody makes you feel a certain way, that is causing you to realize something within yourself, which then creates the journey for you to then decipher. I think what I've always struggled with is like when I'm in a situation and I feel, I think I brought this up to you yesterday, actually, when I'm in a situation and I feel a trigger, but I'm unsure of where that trigger is coming from mm-hmm. or what's causing it. And then that creates an angst because I can't put a finger on what it is I need to solve. But as I'm saying this, I'm realizing even the idea that I need to solve it right. is probably causing the aversion to me creating the peace I need. Exactly. Because we've, we've introduced a mental process into an experiential one. 
Mm. And there's nothing else in nature that does that. You know, like squirrels don't go to soak up someone else, right? <laughs> like cows aren't going to abundance workshops, right? Because they're not introducing this That'd intellectual process into their experiential one, right? We're the only species that does that. So we're the only species that all of a sudden overrides how we're feeling with this mental process of needing to understand, of needing to figure out, of needing to make it safe, of needing to make it okay. But the difference is that we're always okay. And that the feeling isn't the problem. It's our unwillingness to relax into the feeling. So going back to just feeling absolutely powerless. Okay. So here's the interesting thing. Why do we need an ego? We need an ego to protect and defend the powerless parts of ourselves. In that moment, the excruciating nature of the suffering that I was experiencing at that, in that melting pot of crisis, allowed me to tap into the very powerlessness that needed me to create this persona of Panashtya Sai in the first place. In that moment, I was receiving the greatest gift of all, the disillusion of this false self and identity that I didn't need, that was getting in the way, that was undermining things. And so when we get to that place of powerlessness, all of a sudden what emerges in that powerlessness is our power. And this is the part that we are not getting You know, we're affirming away what we need to feel. You know, we're mentally repeating things to ourselves that are getting in the way of what we have to be present to. And the bigger notion that we have to become aware of powerfully is this notion that the divine can never be absent in any experience. We can never edge God out because God is all that there is. And if all this thing is about is love and freeing myself of my own distortions to that love, which is basically everything in this moment that stops me from loving you, well, then that's a life worth living. That's a journey worth walking on. Because at that point, all I'm ever doing is reducing the distance between where I am and where you are by dealing with what I have to inside of myself. So in this modern world where it's so easy now to look outside of us and blame everything potentially outside of us as a source of why we're suffering, maturing at the spiritual level means realizing that we're the source of every experience that we're having and we're the source of every feeling. And at some point we have to mature in our development and our growth into recognizing that in oneness, life is unfolding as we are. That there's nothing happening to us, there's nothing even happening for us. That life is as we are. That every single thing is an object of our own state of consciousness. It's just on a material level. And I have so many questions. <laughs> um, the biggest one, I loved what you said about the ego, mm. protecting the powerless. I also want to bring up that, like, do you think the ego has no use in helping us live out our highest versions of ourselves? I mean, if I think about mm-hmm. some of the greatest performers or some of the greatest entrepreneurs that have left legacies, that have, that have, that have helped a lot of people or created things that are helping people, mm-hmm. Ego had a lot to do with that, right? I mean, or do you think that they were all doing it from this place of soul? I think I'm just curious for your own take. Like, is that the only role of the ego, or does the ego have more of a role in helping you do something that so, you need to do? So the identity is basically a self-defense mechanism, right? It's almost like this protective force field that we create around us, this egoic layer, right? The ego isn't the enemy or the issue, okay? So the ego is a point of individuation, It's how God expresses uniquely in this world. So right now, in the absence of an identity, there would be no distinction between you and I. 
Yeah. Right? So right now, you're expressing uniquely. So there's nothing wrong with having an ego. But what we have to do is get beyond some of the survival, self-defense yeah. tendencies of that identity because those are the pieces that undermine who we are, right? And I've seen two different kinds of entrepreneurial success or just success in the world in general. There are those people that it's all about them. It's all about their identity. It's all about them trying to prove something. They're coming from deficiency and they leave a trail of carnage in their wake. And there's another group of people where it's not about them. You know, they've resolved whatever they have to inside of themselves and they're operating more holistically. And typically those expressions are more sustainable long term, right? They leave a legacy behind that's actually sustainable, right? Whereas all of a sudden there's this huge amount of accumulation and then everything just implodes, right? So everybody has an identity for a reason. It's just that at some point we have to once again, presence a sense of safety inside of ourselves so that we don't need it anymore. The ego's job in my life was to keep me safe to the point where I didn't need it anymore. And at the point that I didn't need it anymore was the point when I was willing to turn and face the powerlessness that was inside of me that kept it in place in the first place. So enlightenment is your soul giving your ego a hug. <laughs> Oh, we should all pursue enlightenment. Uh, that's that. That makes me want to just. That makes me want it so bad. That's what it is. It is. It's just no longer having a problem with Raj. It's the need to not have a story in the first place. Exactly. It's, and that's where it's about being enough. Because because at the level of the soul, we're enough, bro. Like you're so enough. Like look at everything that you've done in your life. Look at all the things you've done. All the people that you've helped. Even through this medium and this podcast. Right. You're enough. But there's this issue that we have whereby we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. We're constantly looking at our impact in the context of what other people have done. And society has these metrics and, and barometers and litmus tests, right, for where our value comes from, right? But your value and your worth doesn't come from what you produce. Your value and your worth comes from your loving heart and your willingness to be a human being, right? As you're saying That's that, where it comes from. As you're saying that, I'm realizing there's this giant cosmic joke happening. Mm -hmm. If I look at someone else and wish I had what they have, and if I said, hey, I'll be happy when I have that, I'm forgetting the fact that someone else is looking at my life saying the exact same thing. Yeah. And it's this never-ending cosmic joke that we are exactly what someone else needs. Yeah. And we're constantly looking. But let me ask you this. like, I've had a reasonable amount of success, and I'm very proud of myself. But for individuals that may feel like they haven't, or they haven't lived up to some sort of potential, whatever that's defined by, right? Who may not have some sort of material mm -hmm. success to hinge on and mm -hmm. hold on to. How can they get to a point where they feel that enoughness? Now we're going there. Okay. So the school system is there to create a docile and compliant workforce. That's the sole purpose of the school system. The more you listen, the more you do exactly what your teacher tells you to do, the more you follow the rules, the more you're compliant, and the more you're able to show up in a docile manner, which means that you don't ruffle feathers, you raise your hand, you ask questions appropriately, you sit still, the more you're able to succeed in that environment. Okay? So, so all of a sudden, we're conditioned to become units of production. The only problem is that no matter how good you become at becoming a unit of production, your consumption increases. All of a sudden... Instead of living in a 1,000-square-foot apartment, you're living in a 10,000-square-foot home. 
Okay, so now you have to produce more to maintain that lifestyle. So it's a complete trap. That's not where our value comes from. One of the things that I can't stand about our society is that our first question with another person that we meet who is a reflection and embodiment of the divine is what they do for a living. It's not what they love, who they are, what makes them happy. It's what they do. Our entire perception has been programmed into believing that our value solely comes from what we produce in this world. And that's the lie. Our value doesn't come from what we produce and it doesn't come from what we have. Our value is inherently present based on who we are. Yeah. Right? And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Because it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished in your life. If you have the capacity to be peaceful and to be loving and to express your loving nature in the world, you're more successful than some of the most successful people in the world. You have everything at that point. And that's the main thing. Is people, once they are reacquainted with their essential self, have everything. There's nothing missing. The individual who operates with an absence of need has all of the leverage in the world. Hmm. that need that word even as i'm thinking about this like one of the things i've been battling with recently is would i rather be right or would i rather be happy Mm -hmm. and even i feel like need is that is that is in that playground of right Mm -hmm. or or when i don't need to be right i'm inherently happy right i'm inherently blissful or i'm inherently at peace and also you have to look at what you're trying to prove and who you're trying to prove it to as well Right. Because the truth is that you'll never measure up to somebody else's standards. You know, at some point you have to be good enough for who you are because you're looking for love and approval from a planet of people that don't love and accept themselves. So how are you ever going to get it from them? They don't know who they are. They don't they're not connected to who they are. So it's never going to come from them. That's why you have to get it from yourself. It's why you have to turn to yourself for these things. Something's coming up for me and I want to ask it, which is actually kind of frightening Mm -hmm. in a way. But. I don't know if, if I didn't have to be the best, would I? Like that question just popped up for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not the best, what does that mean about me? Mm-hmm. Am I devoiding others of being able to experience some sort of impact because I'm not my best? Mm-hmm. And then what does that say about me? Mm-hmm. So I guess like the real question I'm asking is like when something you've feared has led to helping others, has led to creating freedom in others, has led to somebody being able to improve their lives or some sort of transformation or some sort of inspiration. But it's coming from that place. How do you sort of navigate that? So that's a great question because we're either sourcing our actions from fear or we're sourcing our actions from love. And where we start from is where we'll finish. So if fear is driving you to be the best at what you do, you're never going to get to that place of fulfillment that you want to in your life. And there's no worse feeling than having everything in the world and not being at peace with yourself. There's no worse feeling. Okay. There's nowhere to go from that. Right. So along the way, what's important is that we begin to align our thoughts, words, and deeds with this energy of love that we start living from our hearts. It's magical in how it works. Because the very second we start to orient our lives from that place, we are being our best. We're not trying anymore. There's nothing to prove anymore. We're finally relaxing into our own skin. You know, you're still so young. It's taken me 41 years to relax into my skin. It's taken me a long time. 
My hope is that it doesn't take you longer than the next moment for you to do that for yourself. Because it's not about being anything other than who you are. In being who you are, you are already being your best. Right? Again, go back to squirrels. Squirrels always have nuts. I have never seen a squirrel worry about not having a nut. I've never seen a squirrel needing to prove that it's the best squirrel in the land of squirrels. I've never seen that in nature. Everything in nature exists in this intrinsic, inherent part of harmony. Human beings are a part of nature as well. It's just that in some way we've gotten to this false notion that we're superior and better than everything else in the natural world. And we're not. The only gift that we have is the gift of awareness and consciousness. That's it. Right? We're conscious. We're aware. Right? We have this mind we can question. But I don't know how much of a gift that actually is in the context of our evolution. I was thinking about dogs. Yeah. You know, if you think about a dog and its nature, that's closer to consciousness than mm-hmm. it's, it's just full unconditional love. Right. So eventually you have to evolve into recognizing that when I'm coming from my heart and I'm expressing the loving potential that I am, I am delivering my best into the world. And you can still make an impact. A hundred percent. You make more of an impact because that place is a place of authenticity. And at that point, it's no longer about you. So the moment that you've finished proving to yourself that you're good enough and that you're lovable, that you're a good person, whatever that is, that metric is of best, once you're done proving that to yourself, that's when your service begins. And that's when your life really starts. When does your... So we talked a lot about the heart and the spirit and the soul, but I'd be remiss not to even bring up the mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, the mind is a powerful tool for creation, for for life in general. Mm -hmm. What role does the mind play in being able to, for all of us, just live out our highest selves? So the mind, the the dominant energy of the mind is fear. Now let's look at what it does, right? It analyzes, it quantifies, it puts things into boxes, right? So the mind really is secondary. The only problem is we've given it primary place of importance, right? So the mind is driving our lives instead of our hearts, okay? What's amazing is that now we're beginning to realize that our heart is actually the most intelligent organ in the body and the mind is trying to understand what the heart is experiencing at a vibratory energetic level. It's trying to translate it, right? The only problem is that it doesn't give us an accurate translation. So we are feeling-based organisms and especially we are hardwired to love. We're hardwired to be joyful. We're hardwired to come from this place of acceptance, right? That's why being yourself is the easiest thing in the world. But when you're not being yourself, you're miserable, right? Because you're living up to some mental version of who you're supposed to be. So the mind is useful. However, the mind doesn't deserve to be the dominant aspect of our experience because it can only take us so far. Like everything that you're experiencing in the world is a product of the mind. Somebody had an idea, that idea came into form, okay? However, the mind is finite in its potential. The heart is infinite in its nature, So what we have to do is make the mind the servant of the heart, which is where it belongs. (laughs) When the mind is a servant of the heart, at that point, the mind then is taking all of this loving presence and energy and translating it in a way that people can receive it, like this podcast. So what's happening is loving presence and awareness is being translated through the mind. You had an idea, let's do a podcast, right? This happened, right? So this this is the best use of the mind is to glorify the heart. I like that. It's a poster child for the heart. And that's, that's empowering because I think that 
one of the most powerful practices I've had in the last three years has been a practice of gratitude mm -hmm. or active appreciation, mm -hmm. you know, being appreciative before I need to be appreciative. And I think that to me has been almost like a tool for inadvertently. I didn't even realize this until this conversation, actually, that me actively being appreciative mm -hmm. was me training my mind to start noticing things to be appreciative of, mm -hmm. to start knowing what things are right? when you look at life through the lens of gratitude what does that feel like mm -hmm. and it's almost like i was inadvertently training are there any other tools that you would recommend to almost have your mind be the poster child for your heart so one of the most powerful tools is to come into the acceptance of who we are in each moment okay, okay? because our humanity is the doorway to our divinity so for example when you're in your thoughts instead of trying to change them just observe them Accept the fact that they're there and just observe them. Same thing with our emotions, same thing with our body, same thing with every aspect of life we're living. Life needs to be met with acceptance. The more we accept life the way that it is, the more we align with it, the more we're coherent, and the more we start to live optimally. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, I began to look at why all these gurus and teachers were giving mantras to people and combining them with the breath. And I realized that the power was in the breath. And so the more we're able to just be aware of the fact that we're breathing, the more we're grounded in the moment. It's a way to stay grounded. And the more we're observing each inhalation and exhalation, the more we are available for life, available for life's experiences. Okay? The other thing is appreciation's great, right? However, the only thing that's happening is what's meant to happen. Okay? So appreciation needs to then be extended for every single thing. Yeah. especially even those things that you wouldn't ordinarily be grateful for. Because in the context of our evolution, we don't recognize their importance. Yeah. Like, I'm so grateful for everything we went through as a family uh, that I went through individually around Celeste and her journey with her heart transplant, right? And, and, and that whole phase of my life. And most people are like, how can you be grateful for that? You know? And I'm like, well, because you know what? It's made us who we are now. It's brought us closer to who we really are. Right? Like that was the catalyst to show me that I was enough, that I didn't need to be gifted spiritually or be a great presenter or give a great keynote or transform people's lives in order to be affirmed. That just by virtue of the fact that I was alive, I was enough. Right? So the mind is a wonderful tool, but what we have to do is center it and focus it. And the breath is the powerful, is a powerful way to do it. In the book, there are five commitments. And I love commitments because commitments are like focused intention, right? So when we commit to something, we're going at it with all of our energy. And the first commitment is to know the essential self, right? To actually take the time to get to know who we are, right? The second commitment is to a new past, present, and future. Why? Because we can continue to keep recycling the same old experiences over and over again, or we can figure out we can begin to experience what keeps us trapped in those loops and begin to unwind them. Yeah. And how we do that is by recognizing what a memory is. So a memory is heightened emotion, right? It's a past experience that had heightened emotion associated. You don't remember an average day. You remember the best day and the worst day of your life, right? So what we have to do is be available to feel whatever there was to feel from the past so we can be fully available in the present. Okay, the third is to commit to inner peace. Commit to inner peace. Right? Why is that important? Because inner peace is the foundation of our empowerment. Right? It's the reason why we're here. And the fourth is commit to fulfillment. And then the fifth is commit to unlimited possibilities. So in writing those five commitments, they almost could have been their own book. 
because every one of them is so dense and so rich in what they deliver that if we can make those five commitments every day, right, and the five pillars of life and living, it gives the mind a point, a point of focus and it also allows the heart to be the dominant emergent force in our experience every day. How do you know when you're being honest with yourself? You're, you're able to sleep at night. <laughs> you're able to be peaceful inside of yourself and there's no suffering in your experience. So when you're being honest with yourself, there's no suffering inside. There's no dissonant energy inside of you, right? And being honest with yourself is relative, right? Because your truth and what you have to acknowledge your truth is drastically different than my truth and what I have to acknowledge is my truth. Now, there are some universal principles that we share, but in the context of your individual journey, what you have to be honest about is unique to what I have to be honest about. That have to, Mm -hmm. that word is, is... The only reason why I say that is because the reason why we suffer is because we're not being honest with ourselves. And also, it's the entry point into freedom, right? So, for example, if we're working a job that we can't stand, right, but we're not being honest with ourselves about how we feel every day in working in that job, then we perpetuate our suffering. Same thing with relationships, same thing with finances, same thing with everything. The only place where we have to be congruent and be honest is internally. If we're congruent and honest in here, then we're in alignment with life naturally. And that's how it works. So this isn't about being honest with anybody outside of you. It's first and foremost about being honest with who you are internally and being being in harmony with that. That then leads to whatever the next thing is, right? The next extension of that in the world. And at that point, if there's a conversation that needs to be had at work or in a relationship or financial, whatever that is, you can get to that point. But I've realized that the purpose of suffering is to humble us, to support us in getting the help that we need. That's all it is. We suffer until we're finally able to say, you know what? I don't have the capacity to do this. I surrender. Like whatever it is that I have to go through, whatever it is that I have to experience, I'm willing to go through it. And in that moment, the grace comes flooding in. How do you know what truth feels like? like so when you're... truth, again, so truth, everything for me uh, resonates at the level of peace. So we know how we feel, right? Because when we source our experience from peace, we're sourcing our experience from our soul or essential self. It's how it works. So when we're being honest with ourselves, we're at peace in ourselves, right? Even if that means that you may potentially hurt somebody else's feelings, Right, Or you may remind them of the hurt that they already have inside of them. But having the courage to be honest with yourself about yourself is the easiest way to unwind who you've become. And in that, you facilitate almost this rebirthing of yourself, where you allow this truth of who you are to emerge from inside of you, and then to be expressed out beyond you into the world. How do you cultivate that courage muscle? Well, you realize that you're not in it to be approved of. You're not here to be liked. This isn't, you know, the, the court of public opinion where, you know, your life is, is on trial, right? Your life is your life. And through living your life, which is your purpose, you're restoring harmony and balance to the universe. So your journey and your feeling, even the dissonance and the discomfort is a part of your journey in returning to harmony. But you just have to be congruent with that and be at peace with that because you know when you're not, when you're out of alignment. We know how it feels, Right? We're sad, we're depressed, we're angry, we're frustrated, right? So, so here's, the, here's the, the metric. If I have to get upset, overwhelmed, or stressed out in order to have something, it's not meant for me. 
If there's any suffering involved in anything that I'm going through, it's not meant for me. Oh, that's powerful. That's your body telling you it's not meant for me. 100%. Which is a hell of a lot more intelligent Mm -hmm. than any tool you have. Yep. And yet we've become so used to being stressed out and overwhelmed and pushing and striving and doing all of these things. This is why our bodies are breaking down because we're not paying attention. So the more I'm in neutrality, the more I'm in my power and the more I'm in alignment. So this is why I will never get stressed out or overwhelmed or worked up in order to have something. I'd rather just say no because it was never meant for me in the first place. But I have the courage to be that way because I've lived long enough now to realize that all of the best things that have happened to me, I I didn't create them. I was not the source of them. I've realized that I'm actually not the source of anything, that I'm just observing everything playing out and unfolding, and I'm just kind of along for the ride. And it's like, okay, now accept this. Okay, now accept this. Okay, now accept this. And the more I'm able to just be in the flow of my life and just say yes internally to everything that's happening and be in harmony with it all, the more I'm living optimally. It's funny, I had this realization the other day that I don't actually create money. I just receive money from other people's bank accounts. Yeah. I don't see a view of panache. I'm sitting in a way that I get to see a view of panache. Yeah. It's, it has nothing, nothing. I'm not creating No. or manifesting, whatever word we want to use. I'm not yeah. doing anything. Yeah. I'm just elevating my capacity to see what's always been there. I had an experience where I almost could see that, well, not almost, I saw the truth of everything in, in how we live life. And what I saw was that it's almost like we're living a replay of our entire existence as if for the first time. That there's a space within which all of this has already happened. That's why when we meet each other, it's so familiar. You know, we have that immediate connection. How do we have that? In this infinite universe, how is it that we meet the people that we meet? How is it that we're having the conversations that we're having? Right? There's this predetermined quality to life that provides me the freedom to have the courage to really live. Because at that point, I don't have to worry about missing out on anything or messing something up or failing at something. You know, we're just going through the modifications and fine-tuning and adjustment that we have to internally at the level of feeling to finally allow what's meant for us to come into being. Or simply stated, we're just realizing that we're not that special, not that important. And the more we get out of the way and allow life to do what life does, the more we experience this magical adventure. And you're reminding me of why I love the ocean so much. <laughs> like when I'm sitting by the ocean and you see the waves just constantly crashing and crashing and crashing. Mm. I always get reminded that it doesn't matter if I'm sleeping, the waves are crashing. Mm. doesn't matter if I'm awake, the waves are crashing. doesn't matter if I'm successful, the waves are crashing. doesn't matter if I feel like an absolute failure, the waves are crashing. Life is happening well before when I was born and it will be happening well after I am dead. Yep. And so why am I getting wrapped up in this one moment? Mm -hmm. I want to get back to presence with you because I think that you use presence or the way you describe presence is so powerful. What is presence? That's just an overarching concept. It's a great question. So uh, in 2002, 2003 of New Year's Eve, I finally got to a point of frustration where I've been told my whole life that I was here to do something and help people and expand consciousness. And I'd had a series of experiences that didn't make any sense to me. Some of them were just frightening because when I would go into a place of stillness, I could experience everything in that person. I mean, it's almost like I was them. There was no separation, right? And I, and I didn't know how to navigate that as a child. 
And so I get to 2002, 2003, and I'm like, okay, God, whatever you are, because I was still undecided. I still couldn't reconcile a lot of what had happened in the name of God. Like we're more divided under the name of God than we are through anything else. Like it's like you bring up God and all of a sudden it's like, you know, people get very positional and very kind of right and just about their version of what that means. And so at that point, I'm just like, okay, God, like whoever you are and whatever you are, like I need to experience that. Because until I've experienced it, like I'm not going to sit across the, the room from a mother who's lost her child and tell her that in some way that unfolded in divine order. Like I am not going to be that guy. So until I've experienced, and I was especially skeptical being Indian because we've got 5,000 year old history of this stuff, right? Gurus and teachers and this whole thing. So we've seen how it plays out in every single time, right? So for me, it's like, okay, great. Like whatever this is, I need to experience it. On a sofa like this in Venice, California, wave after wave of energy starts moving through me. A short lifetime's worth of unresolved emotion, memories, whatever. And eventually I got to this place of just absolute clarity. The whole room just became this beautiful golden light. But it was like so brilliantly golden that it almost appeared like a white light. And in that moment, I realized that this was the energy that was flowing through my whole life. That this is who I was. This is why I was here. And that this is what was affecting all of this transformation through me. That I wasn't doing anything. That I was the conduit through which it was happening. And... I also saw that every rule, every requirement, every prerequisite that we've created around God is a limitation that's been created to the level of human beings. It's not true. That we're all this love. And love doesn't even do it justice. It's beyond the word love. It's beyond any human definition. And that this is who we are. And as much as it's all around us, it's inside of us. And that this is where we've come from and this is what we're returning to. And that this is what we're experiencing while we're here. And it was a presence, an infinite field of presence and potential. And in that moment, I also realized that everyone believes in the version of God that they're meant to for them. So, for example, if you're a Hindu, you'll get picked up by Krishna at the end of the white tunnel. If you're a Christian, Jesus will be there. If you're a Buddhist, Buddha will be there. If you're a Sikh, Guru Nanak will be there. It doesn't matter, Right. You're engaging with infinity uniquely. That's all that's happening. We're translating infinity uniquely. And God is this infinite presence of energy. Now here's the cool thing. That infinite presence is inside of us, bro. Every single one of us. We all have access to it. Every single one of us. And we have entry points throughout our day to connect with it consciously through all of the different ways that we've already spoken about here. When we connect with that field of intelligence and presence and we start to live from that place, there's no need anymore. There's nothing missing. There's no time. There's nothing that we have to learn. There's nothing that we have to figure out. There's no role that we have to play. There's nobody that we have to be. We're just so fully immersed in what's happening right now that it's almost like we enter a whole other dimension of being human that most people don't even know exists, or that they don't even know is available to them. So the answer for every single source of suffering that we're experiencing right now is the light. It's that light that's inside of us. And the degree to which we're able to allow that light that's inside of us to shine through us into the world. Wow, man, that... I'm learning something every five minutes in just my own journey. 
I'm realizing when I'm present, there's no thought. Mm. When I'm present, there's nothing that matters. It's almost, I remember the first time I ever held a baby. It was my best friend's daughter. Mm. I was having the worst day ever. But when I held the baby, there was not a single thought. It's like everything evaporated. And I was just sitting there just holding this child that also didn't care Mm -hmm. about what was going to happen. Also didn't have any clarity on what had already happened. It was just Mm -hmm. there in this moment. I'm realizing right now, even (laughs) even the future is actually happening right now Mm -hmm. because it's happening in my head. It hasn't actually come to be yet. Mm -hmm. The past, although it happened, the replay of it is happening right now. Mm -hmm. So if I just stay present... Nothing is happening. It's all happening. It's all happening all at the same time. When you're actually present, you're no longer Raj. So right now, every single person that's watching this and listening to this is living inside of the memory of themselves. They're not actually living inside of the reality of who they truly are. It means that they're relating to themselves in the present as who they used to be. Even when we talk about ourselves, we're talking about who we used to be. We're not relating to ourselves in the moment. And in the moment, there's no identity, there's no ego, there's no barrier to love, there's nothing. There's just an absolute exchange of the highest energy between all of life. And this is our purpose. This is eventually what we relax into, is this moment so profoundly and so fully. Because in this moment, we are connected to eternity. We're connected to all of it. And my only gift in life was my ability to access this state. In my early years, I was doing it unconsciously. Now I can access it on demand. And the more I access this state of being, the more I'm ensuring that whatever the future means, that the future is filled with this potential. Because this is the vibrational energy that I'm putting out into my world. And that is what is organizing this material manifest experience in every moment right now. And then bringing it back to me in the form of this reality. This is how it works. So when we develop the capacity to become supremely present, we create a real relationship with ourselves. We discover who we really are. We start to live outside of the prison or the memory of who we once believed ourselves to be. This is how we become limitless. Presence is the playground of purpose. Mm -hmm. It's also the playground of possibility. Mm. How does purpose and possibility play together. So to be who you really are is your purpose. Feel what you're feeling, think what you're thinking, relax into your experience. That's your purpose. You know, like the plant behind you, its purpose is to be behind you and to do what it's doing and it's awesome plantness. Doing a damn good job right now. (laughs) So it's doing a great job, right? So in that same way, your purpose is to be yourself. The the plant's being what it was created to be. You get to your purpose by being who you were created to be and realizing that you're perfect by design. That the same intelligence that created that plant created you. The only difference is the plant doesn't question that it's meant to be a plant. It doesn't want to be a giraffe. It wants to be a plant. When you get that you being you is the main attraction, you'll give up the need to want to be like anything else or anyone else. And that's when you'll get that your purpose is to be yourself. Because when you're being yourself, that's when the divine gets to love its creation through you. When you're being yourself. Because you first brought that love to yourself. And then by extension, you can then bring it to every single person that you meet. Is there any practical use of emotions like guilt or shame? 
beyond no. being there to teach us something. Those are conditioned control mechanisms, often conditioned into us through religion. You can't feel this, you can't feel that, you shouldn't have this, you shouldn't have that. So guilt and shame create unworthiness. Unworthiness separates us from God. So how is it that a medium that's meant to bring us closer to God is reinforcing guilt and shame that's undermining our connection to the very thing it's meant to be promoting? Look at how many people are guilted and shamed out of their connection with God through their belief, through their path. And they're not, they're not even aware of it, right? So what we have to do is recognize that guilt and shame constitute unworthiness, but unworthiness is the antithesis of who we are. That we don't have to prove that we're good enough to some external form of God, that God lives inside of us. And once we get that and end that sense of separation, there's no unworthiness and there's no guilt and shame anymore. Like, look at sexuality. Right? Guilt and shame shows up the most around sexuality. Right? Why? So that people conform to societal norms. What's appropriate, what isn't appropriate. So if you don't show up inside of the narrow box of conformity as it relates to your sexuality, then you're shamed and guilted. And look at how much addiction and suffering that creates in people. Because it's natural. All of a sudden we've stigmatized what's natural in somebody and made it wrong. Right? And then they don't know what to do with it. So every time that feeling arises, they don't know what to do with it. Right? So then they have to numb themselves. Huh? But if we realize that everything wants to flow and everything wants to move and everything's just a part of who we are, that's the end of it. That's the end of it. So guilt and shame are just control mechanisms. Right? They minimize who we are. But they're not authentic to who we are. Guilt isn't actually an emotion. It's conditioned. Explore that. Well, this, 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 what is the emotion only, then? The emotions are only happiness, sadness, fear. Right? That's it. Those are the only real emotions. And peace. But peace is beyond emotion. Peace is the undercurrent of all human experience. But, but emotion is only happiness, sadness, and anger. Right? So sadness becomes depression. Anger becomes rage, right? But these are emotions. Guilt and shame aren't emotions. So basically we feel sad or we're made to feel sad or bad or wrong in the presence of certain behaviors. So we're guilted into feeling a certain way. It's a manipulation tool, right? You're guilted into doing something that you don't want to do or that isn't natural to you because it's what's expected of you. Everything you're saying right now is making me just realize how much bullshit I've been feeding myself in so many different forms, disguising it as cupcakes with sprinkles on them mm -hmm. that I was told I was supposed to like, or I was forced to like, or mm -hmm. I'd be a bad person if I didn't like. And it's just making me very, very, very present to how much I almost became like accustomed. Like I couldn't tell between truths because it was all muddled in the same crap. It's just... Yeah, I'm realizing it's cutting through it, almost like the crack you mentioned. Like once you see what the crack looks like, you can almost shine a light on all the stuff that's not yeah. that. So just to help you, peace is the truth. Everything else is the illusion. Can the truth hurt? No, because it's peaceful. So I can experience suffering peacefully by not resisting it. But at the point where I don't resist it, I'm not suffering anymore. So for example, let's say... You're in a relationship, all of a sudden your wife comes home and wants a divorce, right? If you resist that, then there's suffering. But if you accept it and you're grateful for the time that you've had, there's no suffering. Mm, so change in reality doesn't necessarily have to dictate suffering. 
If we're congruent with what's happening outside of us, there's no suffering. It's only if we're in opposition to what's happening outside of us that we suffer. So, for example, with Celeste, Celeste was on her own journey. She was going to do whatever she was going to do. And that was her journey, right? Whatever she'd agreed to on a soul level to experience. That had nothing to do with me. My suffering ended when I, when I stopped expecting an outcome as it related to her. And just let her have her journey. And have my experience of her journey. Have my experience of being her father. And going through what I had to go through in relationship to myself. But her journey wasn't personal to me at all. It's just what she had to go through. So it's only the personalization of it that creates the suffering. The very second I could let go of it and not personalize it, there was freedom again. And listen, still had to make medical decisions, still had to deal with the fact that she was in the hospital and three kids were at home. Jan was away from me and my mom was away. And we still had to deal with every single thing. But you know what? I wasn't suffering anymore. I'm thinking back to my dad who almost wore a badge of honor when he suffered Mm -hmm. or when he sacrificed. It was a badge of honor. Mm. What can you say about that in particular? Because I I know that even me at times I carry like hard work must be hard Mm -hmm. or certain beliefs that create a certain level of suffering because I feel like that it's necessary. Mm -hmm. It's a necessary human experience or I had my worth comes from suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, what can you say to that, I guess, in general? So human beings learn through modeling like everything else in nature. So a baby lion learns from its parents how to be a lion. Same thing with human beings. We learn more through modeling than we do through what we're taught verbally, and even more than what we read. Modeling is the most valuable form of learning, and eventually we're going to get that and implement that in the school system. So... Your mother, in theory, is meant to model to you what love is in its purest form. But if mum's depressed and riddled with anxiety, then guess what? You start to model anxiety and depression as love because that's what's modeled to you by mum. Dad is meant to model to you what safety is, right? But if dad's riddled with rage, then all of a sudden you have to hold on to some form of rage in order to feel safe in the world. This is the modeling that we receive on a parental level. Okay, this is before all the conditioning that's verbal, which is just perception programming, right? So if your father found this kind of sense of identity and suffering, okay, then you then perpetuate that in some way, shape or form, because it's what he modeled to you. However, in that moment, you don't have to let it continue on in your experience, right? Because here's the thing. If you really have to suffer in order to have something, is it worth having it? And there's a difference. My mind is coming up with six different answers for that right now. I know. But there's a difference between having a passion and waking up and diligently pursuing that passion every day without an outcome versus suffering every day in order to have something, right? If you're in a job and you're suffering every day in order to have that job, right? And that's that's your present moment experience. It's going to become your predictable past and guaranteed it's going to become your future. Why? Because at the feeling level, that's what you're repeating over and over again. So what I've discovered is that the more we at the feeling level are able to put presence out into the world or we're enough in the world or we're able to come from that optimal space of connection and that's what we're able to put out into the world, the more we start to experience all this heightened synchronicity and possibility. 
Why? Because our vibratory field expands. And at that moment, our reality and, and, and our reality's ability to meet us also expands. But if we're suffering and suffering and suffering every day, and that's the badge of honor that we're wearing at the level of identity. And here's what's crazy. This is how human beings find belonging is through their misery, right? Like when you're with your family, you pretend to be 20% more miserable than you actually are in real life. So they won't judge you. Because you know, God forbid you go home and you're happy and loving and vibrant, they're going to think something's wrong with you. Right? So we find belonging through suffering. But just because everyone's suffering, it doesn't mean that it's the truth. They just don't know how to get out of it. Right? And the crazy thing is, bro, everybody's suffering. Everybody. It doesn't matter what you've attained. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished. It doesn't matter the degrees which you're able to produce. It doesn't matter how much you've transformed the world. Until you get this, you're not free. You're not free. Almost awareness sets you free. Well, first of all, the awareness of the fact that you are suffering and your willingness to be honest about the fact that you are. Almost separating yourself from the suffering. Mm-hmm. Is that usually forced out by some sort of life experience? I mean, obviously somebody listening to this podcast might not have a light bulb moment that yeah. allows them to look at themselves differently. But usually are these, these like even the lens that, that, mm-hmm. that you're not your suffering or, or anything like that. Is that usually caused out by life or is there something that can accelerate that for others and just being able to sort of bring out the suffering? Yeah. So you can consciously choose to evolve and pursue a path of evolution and growth by being with somebody who has evolved and gone beyond their identity. And I preface that on purpose because it's not just about being able to write books and being able to be articulate and deliver concepts. It's the degree to which they have that connection established within themselves. Yeah. Is the degree to which they're able to be that tour guide for you. That's the most important thing. Secondly, um, we can then use catalyst, use uh, crisis as a catalyst into presence as well. Okay? But we have to get the crisis in that moment as a gift. In the intensity of the emotion, the level of dissonance that we're feeling is bringing to the surface everything that we've been denying, repressing, or suppressing inside of ourselves. So in my case, it was the underlying core feeling of powerlessness that kept me holding on to this false notion of an identity or an ego in the first place. So it was very useful in that regard. And then thirdly, life in general. So every day, by paying attention to how we feel internally, we can use life as our teacher. Life can be our catalyst, right? So these are the three entry points. More often than not, sadly, because we're so unconscious as a species, crisis becomes the catalyst, right? But very rarely... Somebody will be on a path of empowerment and they'll actively be seeking out, how do I go about doing this? How do I go about evolving? How do I go about freeing myself of this suffering? Right? And then even rarer still is meeting somebody who's freed themselves of their suffering, who's able to expedite the process for you. I guess you wouldn't even seek freeing yourself from the suffering unless you felt like you were worth freeing yourself from the suffering. Right. It's almost like there's an underlying layer of self-love that's required to even begin this journey. There's an underlying level of self-love that's required for everything. In the absence of that underlying level of self-love, there's no way that you can move into alignment with anything more than what you're, what you're living out right now. How do you practice self-love? Hanging out with my wife, hanging out with my kids, taking care of myself, you know, being aware of who I am, you know, recognizing that my state of being is the most important thing and that there's nothing else in this world that's you know, as important. You know, watching a movie... listening to music, listening to things, curating my experience of my reality around how I want to feel every day instead of just allowing life to do that. 
you know, I, I, for example, the good thing is now you can download a playlist that says feel good. Hmm. Why isn't that the number one playlist? Come on, bro. Feel good, <laughs> right? You, I mean, it's self-evident, right? Feel good and feel happy. So those are the two playlists I have. Feel good and feel happy. When I want to feel good, I listen to the feel good one. When I want to feel happy, I listen to the feel happy one. I didn't download the feel miserable one. That's right? such a good point. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, you're right. If you even think about music. Everything. Movies, music, everything. Like everything that we're consuming is creating an impression on us. Yeah. So then why wouldn't you consume things or be in harmony or alignment with things that leave an impression at a feeling level of that which we wish to be the dominant experience of who we are as human beings? So there's a lot of Disney movies in my house. Once you get past the fact that someone's parent died, it's typically uphill from there. (laughs) But it all starts with the annihilation of someone's parent. So once you get past that first five-minute tragic window, at that point, you're you're good. Well, there's beauty in death. Yeah, there is. There's beauty in death yeah. and the natural cycles of life. And, yeah. you know, beautiful. I think self-love has been one of those, one of the hardest things yeah. for me to practice personally, even understanding what that is. Because, yeah. yeah, I could scream from the top of my lungs. I'm confident. I am happy. I deserve this. I'm great. Yeah. But all of it is just, there's this underlying almost child inside me that's screaming. Yeah. And, um yeah, that's been one of the most profound journeys for me is just even dancing with that and allowing myself to feel powerless. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's, that's, I, I don't even, what does that feel like? It's like when you say powerless, like. Powerlessness means that you, I mean, it, it's such an overwhelming feeling because you, there's nothing you can do at the level of your identity. So no matter how smart you are and how intelligent you are and no matter what gift you have or what ability you have, It's absolutely useless in the context of what's happening. But then you realize that your identity is completely useless in the context of what's happening. Irrespective, it doesn't matter. Then you're able to surrender it. Oh, wait a minute, I don't need this part of myself anymore. It's okay for me to just be this loving presence than I am and to navigate the world as this loving presence than I am, which is who I naturally am. I don't have to be normal, I can start to be natural. And the entry point for self-love is self-acceptance. I wouldn't have people jump all the way to self-love because it's too much of a leap for people. But at least start accepting and embracing yourself the way you are. The more you can accept and embrace yourself the way you are, the more the love will begin to follow. But this is how we begin to unwind all of this conditioning, all of this projection, all of these rules, requirements and regulations that have been placed upon our infinite nature. When you say acceptance, is that the same thing as forgiveness? It can be. But ultimately, you get to a point where you realize that there's not a lot to forgive. You know, it's all kind of playing out in the way that it's meant to for us to wake up to who we are. I mean, great design on your part. You know, you you really did a good job of picking every single detail out perfectly to have you get to this point where you could finally choose what was in your heart all along. Right. And that's true for all of us. What we need to do is get to a place where we can be with our humanity. Right. And that's the soul giving the ego a hug. Be with your humanity, be with who you are, be with yourself as you are. We spend so much time getting to know other people, but we don't know ourselves. And we spend most of our time with ourselves. So we have to cultivate the ability to be with who we are, be with our humanity, be with every level of our being. And in that, then the love naturally begins to arise. Because in that, we realize that we're not broken, we don't need healing, we don't need fixing, and we're not a mistake. Beautiful. Panash, you are such a bright light i appreciate you doing the work in the way that you have it's just a beautiful example of what's possible 
I'm very grateful to just be here with you in this medium and get a chance to witness witness the possibility. So I'm very grateful that you represent that for me. And um, so thank you. Well, I'm grateful that I get to be with my 28-year-old Indian self and, <laughs> yeah. and, and remind him that uh, he's going to be okay and that there's a great power in him being who he is. And the more he's willing to just be who he is and be at peace inside of himself, the more he's ensuring a future for himself that he can't even begin to imagine right now. So thank you for the gift of your time and your journey. And I can't wait to see how it plays out, bro. I can't wait. Saddle up. (laughs) Okay, so, I mean, the book is everywhere now. Yep. Obviously, everybody listening, this conversation was any indication into the the depth of Panache and everything he represents, um, or everything he's a shining light for. I hope you guys enjoy more of the brilliance. Uh, it's just, I can't wait for this to be in the hands of everybody, man. <laughs> like, this is probably the most important podcast episode I've done mm. out of a hundred and... I think I'm at 120-something now. This is probably one of the most important episodes mm. that I've done, and I'm just grateful that I'm grateful that you listening get a chance to dive deeper and finally realize that you are who you've always been looking for. Mm. All of its beauty. So thank you, brother, for you. Um, but everybody, that is a wrap for this week's episode of Stay Grounded. I'm your host, Raj. This is your new friend, Panache. And from us, stay grounded. We'll chat soon. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of Stay Grounded. I hope you found this interview helpful as you create your own ways to live an extraordinary life. For more resources and support, please visit www.rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded to join the official Stay Grounded Facebook group, a place where aspiring life enthusiasts can connect and ignite passion for life together. My hope is that the positivity, content, resources, and support in this group will resonate with you on a deeper level. That what you hear in our podcast, read in our thoughtful posts, or learn in our courses will empower you to live with intention, uncover true purpose, and challenge the internal dialogues that stop you from being who you really want to be in your life. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Stay grounded.